0: Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. On Monday, July 12th, the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, began a month of peaceful civil disobedience in Washington, D.C. Other state capitals will also um, feel the brunt of the Poor People's Campaign. The goal is to Congress to act to protect voting rights and to draw attention to the interlocking injustices of poverty, racism, the war economy, ecological devastation, and what they say is the nation's twisted moral narrative. And on Monday, July 19th, 100 women will descend in Washington, D.C. from the Poor People's Campaign to do civil disobedience. July 19th is significant as it marks the anniversary of the Seneca Falls Women's Convention which pressed for voting rights for women. Our guest is the Reverend Liz Theo Harris, who is a joint coordinator of the Poor People's Campaign and National Call for Moral Revival. This is a growing movement with coordinating committees in 40 states across the U.S. It's multiracial, it's urban and rural, and it is having quite an impact. And for our weekly Earthwatch, indigenous environmental activists are under attack with increasing numbers of them murdered. The reason they're killed, they campaign to stop environmental degradation, which puts them at the crosshairs with corporate interests who want to exploit and therefore disrupt or destroy ecosystems, not to mention the health of those who live on the planet. And the killings are across Central and Latin America, from Berta Cáceres in Honduras to Black indigenous Garifuna people also in Honduras, to now the son of a leader of Chile's Mapuche people. Our guest is Francisca uh, Stuarto, who is based in Chile with Global Witness.
1: I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. The Surgeon General is warning Americans about what he calls the urgent threat of health misinformation. The warning is part of the government's current push to boost stalling vaccination rates. Dr. Vivek Murthy's advisory is the first under the Biden administration. It addresses an epidemic of misinformation and disinformation and its pernicious impact on public health, specifically threatening the U.S. response to COVID-19. It frames misinformation as having hindered vaccination efforts, put lives at risk, and extended the pandemic. The advisory says combating misinformation is a moral and civic responsibility on an individual and an institutional level. The decision to elevate this issue in his first official advisory comes as some Republicans have used the government's coronavirus response and vaccine messaging as a political wedge. The U.S. will offer rewards of up to $10 million for information leading to the identification of anyone engaged in cyber attacks against critical U.S. infrastructure, including ransomware attacks. Ransomware attacks are when hackers steal data from organizations and demand payment to release the information. The Biden administration is launching the website StopRansomware.gov to offer the public resources for countering the threat. Another measure from the Treasury Department will engage banks, technology firms, and others on better anti-money laundering efforts for cryptocurrency and on developing more rapid tracing of ransomware proceeds. Officials hope to seize more extortion payments in ransomware cases, as the FBI did in recouping some of the $4.4 million ransom paid by Colonial Pipeline. The move comes after several high-profile attacks that have hit U.S. companies. President Biden's nominee to head the Census Bureau was set to testify today at a Senate confirmation hearing. Robert Santos, who is Latino, would be the first person of color to become a permanent director of the Bureau, which conducts the once-a-decade headcount of people living in the U.S. and all the statistical and demographic data that goes along with the tally. Currently, Santos is the American Statistical Association's president and the Urban Institute's chief methodologist. He would serve as the Bureau's director past the current Biden administration and through the end of 2026, during a key period of preparations for the 2030 census. Cuba says it will allow people to bring food and supplies into the country without having to pay extra fees. It's an apparent nod to the large anti-government protests over the weekend against food shortages, high prices, and the government's mishandling of the pandemic. Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel, for the first time, is offering some self-criticism while saying that government shortcomings in handling shortages and other problems played a role in this week's protests. Up till now, the Cuban government had only blamed social media and the U.S. for the weekend protests, which were the biggest scene in Cuba in decades. With the Olympic Games just over a week away, new daily coronavirus cases have surged above 1,300 in Tokyo. It's a six-month high. Tokyo is under a fourth state of emergency. New daily cases have been steadily climbing since mid-June, and experts say they could hit several thousand during the Games. More from Future Story News' John Matthews from Tokyo. Seven staff members at a Japanese hotel outside of Tokyo tested positive for the coronavirus. The delegation they were hosting is said to be in a bubble and did not have direct contact with the staff. Still, the new cluster raises concerns that the International Olympic Committee's repeated claims of a safe and secure Games may be under threat. A recent poll suggests 78% of Japanese people are against the Games going ahead. Plus, Tokyo has reported 1,149 daily COVID cases for Wednesday, already outpacing the fourth wave and running headlong into a fifth wave of infections. Still, despite being in the first week of a new state of emergency, foot traffic in Tokyo's major hubs is only down around 15 to 20 percent week on week, according to new survey data. And that's FSN's John Matthews. India and China have agreed to lower tensions along their shared border. The foreign ministers of both countries met on the sidelines of a summit meeting in Shanghai and agreed to more talks. Ishan Garg reports.
2: India and China say a prolongation of the existing situation is not in the interest of either side. Both have also agreed on calling a meeting between senior military commanders from both sides. The two nations had agreed to completely disengage from friction points in the Himalayan region, but the last few months have seen heavy troop deployments to the contentious border area. Experts say the nuclear neighbours do not trust each other and need to scale back their armies to build trust. They also believe that high-level political dialogue is necessary, especially since several rounds of military and diplomatic dialogues have already failed to resolve the border conflict. Ishan Garg, New Delhi.
1: I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio.
0: And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We are going to start our show today with our weekly Earth Watch. And in the lead up to the weekly Earth Watch, we would like to uh, bring you a, a clip of of a recent, part of a recent talk by Greta Thunberg. She um, began, she became known around the world as a 16 year old who has been uh, fighting for the environment. And uh, I imagine she's a bit older now than 16. This is a speech she gave this year, excerpts from a speech this year. And it gives us the context of what we're discussing in the fight for the environment. Let's go to that clip now.
2: There's something I would like to talk about. Our relationship with nature is broken, but relationships can change. The climate crisis, ecological crisis, and health crisis, they are all interlinked we no longer see the links between them we only see this far so what will we do my name is Greta Thunberg and I would like to connect the dots because let's face it if we don't change we are f***. millions have died from COVID-19 Zika, Ebola, West Nile fever, TNT, SARS, TNT, and MERS. Up to 75% of all new diseases come from other animals. Because of the way we farm and treat nature, cutting down forests and destroying habitats, we are creating the perfect conditions for diseases to spill over from one animal to another and to us. The next pandemic could be much, much worse but we can change. 83% of the world's agricultural land is used to feed livestock. Yet, livestock only provide 18% of our calories. The way we make food, raising animals to eat, clearing land to grow food to feed those animals. If we continue, we will run out of land and food. It just doesn't make sense. The land requirements of meat and dairy production are equivalent to an area the size of North and South America combined. From Alaska to Tierra del Fuego, we have industrialized life on Earth. If we keep making food the way we do, we will also destroy the habitats of most wild plants and animals driving countless species to extinction. This really sucks for us too. They are our life-supporting system. If we lose them, we will be lost too. In the words of the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, for too long, long, we have been waging waging a senseless and and suicidal suicidal war on nature. And what about the climate? We know that we need to drastically reduce our emissions starting now. When we think about the villains of the climate crisis, of course, we picture fossil fuel companies. But agriculture and land use together are about one quarter of our emissions. This is huge. It doesn't have to be like this. If we change towards a plant-based diet, we could save up to 8 billion tons of CO2 every single year. We could feed ourselves on much less land and nature could recover. Pandemics, of biodiversity, climate disruption, of oceans, inequality loss of fertile topsoil, these are all just symptoms. What they all come down to is the way we treat nature, the way we value nature. We need a system change. But we can fix this. Because we are part of nature. When we protect nature, we are nature protecting itself. And finally, the animals. Every year, we kill more than 60 billion animals, excluding fish, whose numbers are so great that we only measure their lives by weight. What about their thoughts and feelings? Some animals plan for the future, forge friendships that last for decades. They play, they help each other. They show signs of what we call empathy. But 70% of the animals we farm live inside factories. In the United States, that number is 99%. Their lives are short and terrible. How will we be judged? It is heartbreaking to know all this, but it is also our opportunity. We know what we can do, we can change the way we farm, we can change what we eat, we can change how we treat nature. Some of us have lots of choices, while some have none at all. Those with the most power have the most responsibility, and most of us can do something. So what will you do?
0: most of us can do something what can you do and uh certainly given the environmental crisis we hope that all of our listeners are paying attention to the crisis um from the melting of the glaciers to the heat dome uh that some of our listeners right now are suffering through and uh, the call that Greta is making and environmentalists are making but that indigenous people have been saying uh ever since um they have walked on this earth we have to uh, change our relationship to nature and uh, pay attention to it Greta Thunberg is a Swedish environmental activist who is internationally known for challenging world leaders to take immediate action for climate change uh, mitigation Uh, now a number of indigenous people who actually have been leading uh, for decades now the movement for the environment, have been under vicious attack, several of them killed, across the Western Hemisphere, indigenous environmental activists um, are facing assassination, or other violence and repression as they continue to defend water and lands from right-wing governments and multinational corporations whose priority is protecting corporate interests and profit. In Chile, the indigenous Mapuche people have been leading the charge when it comes to protect defending protected environmental areas from occupying forces let's go to a clip now um, from uh, Al Jazeera um, that really shows and explains a bit
3: about the relationship between the Mapuche and nature the Araucaria tree is extraordinary in many ways and not just for its enormous size or its sharp and scale like leaves it grows very slowly and can live for up to a thousand years a prehistoric species, in fact. But the Araucaria is much more.
4: The Araucaria is a sacred tree for us. It is our mother and father because it provides us pahuenche with our food and sustenance.
3: Maria Romero Cheuquepil is a pahuenche, a name taken by the native Mapuche who live by the Andes Mountains. Before harvesting the Araucaria's fruit, called the piñón, she asks for its permission and gives it thanks. For centuries, until till this day, the pehuenches have bartered or sold their piñones for survival. They're extremely nutritious. In fact, we're told they also help increase fertility. Can I try one? they mm, they're like chestnuts. Vamos afuera... On this day, we're invited to eat them for dessert. Maria Romero is a huento chefe, or healer, and explains that the piñones are more than food.
4: The arakauria, the water, the earth, the air that we need to live don't need us. It is us who need them. That is a Mapuche vision.
3: The Mapuche believe that man's abuse of nature is causing climate change, drought and illnesses like cancer and the pandemic that we're witnessing. The indigenous people of Chile realized long ago that if they overexploited their natural resources they would die of hunger, which is what happened to the Native Americans in the United States when the white man exterminated the buffalo. These days the concept of living in harmony with nature is actually becoming mainstream. So much so that many Chileans who've long regarded the Mapuche with contempt for believing that people should take from nature only what one needs are beginning to understand the need for all to do the same. Lucia Newman, Al Jazeera, Lonquimay, Chile.
0: Yes, and in Chile, um, indigenous Mapuche people Under attack for, first of all, living um, in harmony with nature, but also defending nature. Back in June, Mapuche land rights defender Alberto Curamil was seriously injured in a shooting by police. He was left with 18 riot shotgun pellets stuck in his body after police chased his truck and opened fire. This after a protest against an arson attack on a Mapuche home on contested land in southern Chile. Uh, Curumel's shooting took place just over a year after Chilean authorities attempted to jail him for 50 years. Um, and some trumped up uh, charge that there was no physical uh, evidence linking him to the crime environmental activists have pointed out that the false charges were designed to suppress his activism. This led to a UN special rapporteur on human rights appealing to the court for a fair case. Um, He was later unanimously acquitted of all charges which arose less than two years after he successfully petitioned and halted the construction of two hydroelectric projects on a sacred river in 2016. In 2019, he was awarded the Goldman Environmental Prize. Meanwhile, in Honduras, a U.S.-trained former Honduran Army intelligence officer was recently found guilty over the assassination of indigenous Lenca environmentalist activist Berta Casales. Uh, Roberto David Castillo, the president of an internationally financed hydroelectric company, was found guilty of being a co-collaborator in ordering her murder. Casares, who was also a recipient of the Goldman Environmental Prize, was murdered in 2016 by hired hitmen after years of violent threats linked to her opposition of the Aguasarca hydroelectric dam. Uh, The the river, the dam was uh, proposed for a river that is upheld as sacred by the indigenous Lenca people in Honduras. Uh, Despite this, the dam was approved anyway, even though it did not comply with national and international environmental policies. A high court in Honduras ruled that Castillo used paid military informants to monitor Berta Cáceres. For years and then of course then she was killed. He later coordinated, plan and raised funds to pay for Berta Cáceres's assassination. Wow. But today we're going to focus on what is happening with the indigenous Mapuche people of Chile and I'd like to welcome our guest Francisco Suabro who is based in Chile, a Santiago-based consultant for the International Climate Advoc- advocacy group Global Witness. She works on their Land and Environmental Defenders campaign, which highlights threats against activists and pushes businesses, financiers and governments to protect them. Francisca, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hi,
4: good morning and thanks for the invitation.
0: Sure, and we'd like to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. We partner with them for our weekly uh, Earth Watch. Now, Francisco, we know that uh, last year there were a lot of protests happening in Chile, a lot of um, happening on the ground there that was pretty widespread. We know that uh, the Mapuche people participated in it, and I recall during those protests some Mapuche communities were yeah. under attack. Uh, now, tell us a bit about the Mapuche community and what they have been doing to defend the environment. Let's talk about that before we get into the attacks against them. Francisco.
4: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I would like to say first that this is part of a systemic violence that we as Global Witness uh, have documented across regions. And and we know that Latin America is one of the regions that documents the most these type of attacks, but also uh, one of the the regions that uh, where more attacks are documenting every year, documented every year. Um, So I would like to say first that this is not specific cases, and and it goes way beyond specific cases, and it's more systemic violence, uh, racism, and 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 neoliberal policies that are put in place in states that uh, uh, are, are, are failing to protect people that are defending democracy, are defending the environment, uh, the common goods, and, and things that could help us overcome the current climate crisis. So uh, beyond specific cases and actions, I would say that, uh, first of all, this is something uh, that is urgent to pay attention to because it's costing lives, is causing huge damage, environmental damage, and irreversible uh, consequences for affected communities. Um, in, in the particular case of Mapuche people, this is a historic resistance that has taken place in, in, in Chile, the southern part of Chile, particularly. And these people have, have, have struggled uh, for years uh, to be recognized by the state, to be protected by the state. Uh, and for their claims uh, to be listened uh, by population, so why I'm saying this is this systemic uh, racism uh, implies that uh, people, many people, do not uh, take credit for what's going, what what's happening. And when they, these people protest, uh, the main reaction is that they're going against development, that they don't want to, for all of us to uh, live safe. Uh, they're calling for violence, and and. That that's a very damaging and 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 I would say very concerning image that it's projected on 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 these London environmental defenders because once they're attacked, uh, public opinion uh, just goes against them and say like that's what they, that's what they deserve for for being violent for and for harming communities uh, instead of saying this is something very concerning because it means that we cannot protest and that we cannot. Uh, uh, ask for our rights and and fight for our rights and I think that in in the case of China that was very well portrayed when the protests started in 2019 and when there was the whole country facing this violence and this state violence from police um, forces and that's when people realized that what what people were denouncing years and years ago was now happening to all of them and uh, you know that now we're Going through this huge political agreement, that uh, uh, it's allowing us to build a new constitution after uh, more than 30 years of uh, 17 years of dictatorship and almost 30 years of of a political regime that uh, used the constitution we wrote in in during the, the dictatorship of Pinochet. So now we're facing, uh, uh, I would say, I'm optimistic and I'm saying that this is a tipping point and maybe a huge opportunity to start recognizing the, the, the role of indigenous people, their rights and and, and their willingness to contribute to a plurinational uh, state in which we all uh, enjoy our rights. And, 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 yeah, I would say that also uh, the significance that it has land and the environment for them it needs to be recognized and addressed for, for, uh, for all of us because uh, when they talk about the river, they, they don't talk about just the water uh, running. They, they talk about sacred places. They talk about the place where they meet. Uh, and it was uh, the same with Berta Cáceres. Uh, the Hualcarque River was a point uh, for everyone to meet, to enjoy the river, to uh, be and enjoy nature. So it goes way beyond. Uh, River and land, it's about the territory and the significance of this territory and this among us for them.
0: Right. And um, the Mapuche makeup, um, you could say if this is correct, 12% of Chile's population, the largest indigenous uh, group there. They've been fighting for recognition as Chile's uh, constitution, which, by the way, was drawn up during the dictatorship of uh, Pinochet, is the only one in Latin America not to acknowledge is its indigenous uh, people. So you know there you have some background, and and much of their land was sold off to farmers and and forestry uh, companies. So they're demanding a greater autonomy, recognition of rights, and the return of historic lands. Now tell us about um, this uh, the son of Chile's uh, Mapuche people, uh, uh, a leader of the Chile Mapuche people, who was shot dead recently by the police. Uh, tell us uh, tell us about that and the significance of it and how the Mapuche are responding uh, to his murder.
4: Yes, this is a very recent incident. Uh, and, and it was supposed, uh, initially, they, they thought it was uh, the son of Hector Yaitul Ernesto, but uh, at the end, they, they defined, because they were very similar to Pablo Machán, who was uh, identified as, as a child death person. Uh, I would like to say that this is going under investigation, but the, the claim is for the communities, uh, go, go they recall for investigation for, for due diligence and, and to address it. Because most of these cases end up in impunity. Uh and that's why we see how judicial uh, judicial system works, and they work against defenders and not towards uh, their rights and their guarantees. So uh, we we we're always asked for a proper investigation uh, on these cases, just to know what happened, uh, and just to break down the narratives that are safe afterwards that they, these people were destroying the companies so that these people are, uh, are yeah are terrorists. Uh, these are terrorist attacks. Uh, so yeah, so we, we need to we need uh, a proper yeah. investigation just to know what yeah. happened and who's responsible for yeah. these shootings. They were, shot, they were shot, dead dead shot dead in the head, head which might demonstrate that this is, this was not uh, yeah. a battle uh, and it was more an execution. But I I, I cannot I cannot uh, talk in detail about this because it's too recent and and the justice needs needs to do their work and they have to do their work. It's their obligation. So at this moment, uh, what I can say is that uh, it proves uh, that that this resistance uh, often have deadly consequences for people that are uh, in the territories.
0: Right. And
4: it's (laughs) hard. Yeah, Sorry
0: yeah no i was just going to say uh francisca for people who want to find out more about what's happening with the mapuche people and perhaps who might want to support their demands and their efforts uh what should they do is there a website or a place people can go to uh, get information and and also to offer support francisco uh, i would say that
5: there's many people
4: uh, that are, are advocating for their rights Uh, First of all, the the communities, the the organizations they belong to as ATM, the one that Delonco Alberto Cuyamil takes part in, I would say, these organizations. Molatima is another organization that is working very strongly with affected communities, not only Mapuche communities, but people affected by agribusiness uh, and forestry. and and also I, I wanted to say that these uh, killings demonstrate that uh, that's why we need to uh, that's why we, we're calling for the states to uh, be held accountable but also these companies because at this moment uh, we we don't really know what happened and what's the context and this like the, it's it's been under investigation but it's part of a huge spiral of attacks that includes fly, uh, flying drones on the houses uh, Following uh, these uh, long-costs and, and their families, breaking the, the, the community uh, community dynamics. Um, uh, it includes also surveillance, uh, marrying campaigns, and it's only and it's not going to stop until we we address this issue and we recognize that these these people are uh, land and environmental defenders. Indigenous people are not looking for anything that is not their ancestral territory because it means something for them. Uh, so. I, I just wanted to say that uh, it's important to understand that the killings are the, the top of the iceberg. But then we can we can tell and we have documented many types of attacks, and and they go from uh, digital smear campaigns uh, to like huge uh, infrastructure be tra- uh, behind killings, as we as we witness uh, with the case of Cáceres. So I, I would call for people to take action to recognize the role these people are playing tackle the uh, climate crisis, to follow up uh, these uh, these um, conversations, and also to uh, seek for, for, for justice and also to seek for policies in their countries. I know that the U.S. Uh, hasn't put in place any regulation for companies that are might be causing harm uh, in, in different communities across the world. I know that the EU, we know that we're working with the EU regulation that could uh, finally uh, could help uh, communities to seek justice in the, uh, in all the, for all of the damages caused in any of the uh, stages of the supply chain, and we are we're having uh, the Escazú agreement in Latin America that ha- has needs to be ratified for countries such as Chile that hasn't even signed it yet. Uh, so right. we have lots of stuff, and I and I guess people that are interested in these issues can inform themselves, but also ask, and, and ask for their government and, and to do more, because we need to do more, because it's urgent to do more.
0: Absolutely. Well, on that note, we are going to have to leave it there, uh, Francisca uh, Suardo, who is based in San Diego, Chile, with Global Witness. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. We're going to take a short station break. We're having a bit of a sound issue. We're going to try to fix that during our station break because coming up is the Reverend Liz Theo Harris, joint coordinator of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. You won't want to miss that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And that is Avalon by Rhiannon Giddens. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And you can check out our website at www.sotruradio.org. And if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and send us on Facebook, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out. To our SoundCloud listeners in across Central America and in the United States, we'd like to give a shout out to our listeners in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Now, on Monday, July 12th, the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, announced that it will launch a month of Moral Mondays, featuring peaceful civil disobedience in Washington, D.C. and other state capitals through August second. It is being billed as the season of nonviolent moral action. This comes after the Vote uh, for the People Act, a groundbreaking bill in defense of voter rights, failed to pass the Senate as Republicans voted against starting debate on it. The plan needed 60 votes to advance, and the Senate split evenly. By party. However, it fell along party lines in a 50 50 vote. It also comes after dozens of Texas Democrats fled the state in a last ditch move to stop the passage of a new voter suppression law by the GOP controlled Texas. Legislature. They traveled to Washington, D.C. to speak out against voter suppression and draw national attention to their cause. 51 of the 67 State House Democrats left on planes while several others arrived separately in Washington, making it enough people to prevent Texas Republicans from attaining. Uh, quorum. Now, preservation and expansion of voting rights will be part of the Poor People Campaign's agenda this month and part of the direct action. The Poor People's Campaign's season of nonviolent moral action kicked off with a mass call-in before, during, and after the July 12th press conference called by the group, and it will continue with a peaceful demonstration um, of women doing civil disobedience in Washington, D.C. on July 19th, the anniversary of the first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls, New York. There will also be events in state capitals the following Monday and an August 2nd nonviolent sit-in with peaceful civil disobedience in Washington, D.C. Uh, before we welcome our guest, let us hear um, the other joint coordinator of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, uh, the Reverend William Barber.
6: When we look at where we are today, what is it costing us in America to have 140 million poor and low-wealth people in this, the richest nation in the world, in the country today? What is it costing us to have 43% of the nation, black, white, brown, Asian, indigenous, uh, uh, to be poor and low wealth?
5: And you say there's not a scarcity of resources, but a scarcity of social justice conscience. Can you explain what you
6: mean? Yeah, there's not a scarcity of resources or a scarcity of ideas. We know that people either uninsured or underinsured, we have the resources to insure them. And if we insured them, that investment would actually lift America. It would not hurt it any further. We know every time corporations want money, they get the tax cuts, but poor and low wealth people get the short end of the stick and it's hurting this nation. So there's not a scarcity of resources or scarcity of ideas there's a scarcity of political consciousness in the wheel, and our campaign is saying that stops now with us.
5: Well, let's talk about what this can look like, because you say this is more than any single bill or agenda or political power. But we are seeing elements of what you're pushing for now with some of the Biden administration's most recent measures taking on systemic ills. Do you think that the administration is getting off to a decent start in what you're what you're asking for?
6: Sure, it's a better start. And in fact, we met with the policy team of the president before the inauguration. We took 35 people into that meeting, mostly poor and low wealth people, public health specialists, environmentalists, economists and lawyers. And we laid out what we call a 14 point plan for the healing of the nation. And we argued that you can't heal the nation unless you establish justice. The Constitution says that. So we said healing couldn't just be people being nice in their rhetoric. It had to be a real shift in public policy. Number one, we needed living wages. We needed health care for all. We need infrastructure that's targeted toward poor and low-wealth communities and infrastructure that addresses climate change. We said we needed restoration of the Voting Rights Act. So when we see... Those things being put forward in the House and pushed by the president, we are glad to see it. Now, the question, however, is getting them pushed all the way to policy and at a high enough level. We are deeply concerned when uh, there are those that don't even want, for instance, the president's infrastructure bill. And we believe even at the amount that it's at, it's not fully enough. Right.
0: Right. there you go, and what uh, that was the uh, Reverend uh, William Barber. I'd now like to welcome the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, A National Call for Moral Revival, along with the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II. She's also the director of the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice at Union Theological Seminary. Uh, Reverend Theo Harris has spent over the past two decades organizing amongst the poor in the United States, working with and advising grassroots organizations uh, with significant victories, including the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, the Vermont Workers Center, Domestic Workers United, the National Union of the Homeless. Uh, she's a member of the National Welfare Rights uh, Union. Um, Reverend uh, Liz, as I refer to you as So good to have you back on Sojourner Truth. Thank you for taking the time to join us.
5: Thank you so much for having me, Margaret. It's great to be with you. Now, Reverend Liz, uh, first, we would like to offer up our sympathy from
0: the Sojourner Truth family. We know that you recently uh, lost your dad, and I imagine uh, growing up in the household with him, an activist in his own right, and and your mom, that was quite an early uh, training uh, for you. But, so before we talk about what's coming up with the Poor People's Campaign, just just tell us a little bit about your dad, Reverend Liz.
5: Well, well thanks so much. Yeah, so my father, Ethan uh, G. Theo Harris, uh, was one of the foremost critics and scholars of the FBI, and he helped to break open the abuse of power that the FBI and, and federal intelligence agencies um, was engaging in, you know, uh, uh, from, from their formation, um, uh, and, and, and also I think really shows to us, um, why it, it, it is on all of us to defend our democracy, um, in this, in this day and time, um, you know, from abuses of power, um, from those that are, are in positions of power that are supposed to be, uh, uh, lifting up this society, um, but who have often taken it upon themselves to, to, um, promote, um, white like supremacy and, um, authoritarianism, um, instead of, uh, the expansion of our democracy. And so, um, uh, my father, you know, again, uh, exposed, opened up, uh, so many of these abuses, so much of, of what the FBI was doing. Um, and, uh, uh, his, his spirit is needed in this time, as, as we all are called, to defend our democracy um, and to, to really make sure that we lift um, from the bottom and, and let this whole society, especially poor and low-income people, um, rise um, and, and live the lives that, that, that everybody, everybody, everybody deserves.
0: Yes, and, and Reverend Liz, um, your past
5: here, I mean, you're
0: not only uh, very committed to social justice work, you're very committed to your faith. I read an article that said that since 13, you were actually a Sunday school teacher, then you went on to be a deacon when you were just uh, 16 years old. But now here you are on the national stage, joint coordinator of the Poor People's Campaign, National Call for Moral Revival. Of course, the Poor People's Campaign begun called for by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King just months actually before he was assassinated. Um, Reverend Liz, the... You got together with Reverend Barber, uh, made the call. I, uh, Just for true transparency, I'm a supporter and active with the Poor People's Campaign, uh, specifically here in California. But did you have any idea, when you called for the first 40 days of action, that we would be where we are today and that this movement would have had the impact that it is having now? I mean, coordinating committees in 40 states. You have presidential candidates and now the president uh, talking about poverty in a way for the first time that I had not heard in decades. Uh, Your reaction to the impact thus far, I know there's a lot more to do, but the impact thus far of the Poor People's Campaign, Reverend Liz. Well,
5: well, indeed, I, I. I mean I think it it is so important. Um what we know uh, about history and and today and in, in the impact that the poor people's campaign and national call for moral revival is having is that when people um poor people and moral leaders and activists and advocates come together um especially when we're led by those that are most impacted by the injustices that we're trying to solve that we can indeed make a difference. And and this is actually how change happens. And so so, you know, I've been engaged in very grassroots anti-poverty organizing for decades. You know, I, I, uh, I was brought into the movement by welfare rights leaders and homeless leaders. Um, they are who taught me about Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign and that, that was, you know, actually called for by the National Welfare Rights Organization and, and leaders out of Appalachia and American Indians and, and, and various folks that, that saw the, the kind of coming together of, of movements and, and the need to, uh, to organize back in the 60s that, that is still um, so with us today. And, and, um, and, and, and when I started organizing um, and, and when I personally have experienced poverty and homelessness my own self, uh, I often would not believe that, that we could really make the kind of, of change, the kind of difference. That that indeed, folks are already making. Um, like like you said, uh, poverty is on the national agenda um, in a way that it has not been in over a generation. Um, we ha- have a, a president in office who who all of us are are continuing to 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 need to to challenge and call out, but who has said that you know trickle down economics never worked, and that um, that he is committed to making ending poverty, a theory of change, not just an aspiration, right? I mean, this is, this is powerful. This is significant. And what is perhaps even more powerful and significant is the thousands, the tens of thousands, the reaching to hundreds of thousands and millions of poor and low-income people and others who have started to organize, have been organizing for a very long time, are new to organizing, but who are out there on the streets, you know, in our communities saying uh that, that we can do better. Um and this lie that this is as good as it gets and that we don't have the kind of resources to actually address racism, to address poverty, that that's just it. It's a lie. And so so I am amazed and and, and excited by the impact that the poor people's campaign is already having. And know that we have been called in this time um because we need uh, more leaders to come forward, because, you know, our democracy is under attack. Um, when you live in a, a country that has the wherewithal and the productive capacity to end poverty and homelessness and uh, minimum wages now and and, and fails to do so, um, then we need people, especially people that are impacted by, by poverty and, and, and injustice, to be out there uh, uh, calling us into action and calling us into to being the society that we, we can be.
0: I do want you to talk about this uh, season uh, coming that began on this past Monday uh, where people in the Poor People's Campaign will be doing civil disobedience, including this action, women's action, happening in Washington, D.C. on July 19th. Reverend Liz.
5: Great. So, indeed, uh, July 19th, as you said in in your introduction, is the anniversary of the Seneca Falls Convention, um, where suffragists, um, women and men um, from across the United States gathered 173 years ago um, and put forward a Declaration of Sentiment um, uh, calling on uh, the nation, to, to fulfill its promise of democracy for everybody. And, and, and so this many years later, um, especially given the, the attacks on voting rights that this country is undergoing, um, the, um, uh, women, um, from all across the country, from, from different, uh, geographies and races and creeds, um, will be taking action together, um, putting forward a a statement, a declaration of our own, um, calling on, uh, the Senate and calling on the White House, um, to, to do four things immediately. Um, especially by August 6th, which is the anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. Um, we're, we're calling on the nation to, to pass all of the provisions of the For the People Act. Um, uh, a bill that, that, John Lewis helped to write, um, uh, that that would be about you know protecting and expanding voting rights for everyone. Um, we're we're saying that we have to reinstate all of the Voting Rights Act. The fact that we have fewer voting rights today than we did 56 years ago um, is just unconscionable. Um, we're 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 saying that we we need to end the filibuster, this racist filibuster that that is is making it so that not just we are denying the democracy that 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 the, the people of this country um, desire and 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 uh, are demanding. But also um, the filibuster that is blocking uh, infrastructure, that is blocking healthcare expansion, that is blocking so many of the things that people in this country need and and are demanding. And we're also talking about the need to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour um, that we're just getting started with those demands. We have uh, a whole uh, host of, of, demands that the poor people's campaign has put forward, but we're saying that, that women um, and all people in this nation are, are called to take a stand and, and, um, uh, you know, make sure that, that the nation hears, uh, that, you know, 68% of people are in favor of the for the people act, you know, uh, a vast majority of folks um, uh, agree with, um, and this is cross political persuasion, uh, raising the minimum wage to a, a more living wage. Um, you know, folks have have came forward and said we we need to do so much more, so much better, and that economic justice and and um, civil rights and civil liberties need to be at the very center of our nation. and so uh, again we will we will take action on Monday in washington d c near the Supreme Court um, and and hope that that people will will join us online um, and then also sign up to be a part of this season of nonviolent direct action that is is sweeping the country.
0: Right, and then the following Monday actions will happen at state capitals. Uh, Reverend Liz, just very quickly today, uh, checks are arriving in the mail for the child tax credit. And there are issues with the child tax credit. It's a step in the right direction. Uh, we know that it, it, it won't end poverty, but it certainly uh, will help um, you know families that extra 250 or $300 a month, depending on the age of your child. But Reverend Liz, I don't know that the child tax credit even would have gotten through, even though a lot of us have been working on something like this and the right to welfare for a long time, without the context of the Poor People's Campaign. Just a, a final thought uh, from you, Reverend Liz Theo Harris.
5: So indeed, um, you know, we are able to make a change in this nation when when, when we work together, and, and, and this child tax credit, um, we need it to be... Uh, made permanent we made it we it to continue to be universal and 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 be for everybody but but we need programs like it that start with those that are poor and marginalized and work from there um, we need to center Um, like the Welfare Rights Movement and and like so many um, folks across this country have been fighting for for a long time. Um, But when we do come together, when we do organize, when we do put that pressure, um, we can make life better for us and for our children and future generations. And so, you know, hope that people will join the Poor People's Campaign. Go to poorpeoplescampaign.org to to sign up to be a part of the season. Um, if you're in California or any state across the country, you know, connect up with the coordinating committees in those states um, because we have the power to, 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 to change this society for the better.
0: Yes, we certainly do. And the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, it's the most vibrant, I'll have to say, and powerful movement that I have seen in many, many decades. So thank you, Reverend Harris, O'Harris, uh, for your work, your continued efforts and taking the time to join us. And apologies for our technical trouble this morning. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Alrighty. We are out of time. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott, our audio engineer, Keanu Williams, our sister producer, Romero Funes. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and y'all, please stay safe.
1: We who believe in freedom and love.